This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. You know, we started off last week talking about a lot of political stuff, so I think what it will do for this week's program is start out with some non-political stuff. I think it's fair to say that all of us live remarkable lives, thanks to modern technology. Before we talk about the technologic breakthroughs that we're about to, it's good to acknowledge that. Yes, we live remarkable lives, thanks to technology. But at the same time, we here at Radio Parallax are somewhat skeptical about some new developments. Let us begin with this little item that appeared in The Week. Let me just quote from the piece. A wave of startups are designing clothes for people who loathe during laundry, said Elizabeth Segrin in Fast Company, countering, quote, decades of marketing from the cleaning industry, unquote, that may have, quote, conditioned many people, unquote, to overwash their garments. Several brands are extolling the virtues of recycling your attire without the odiferous consequences. Unbound Merino creates wool travel clothes that can go weeks without being washed, or so they say. A brand called Pangaea boasts an $85 seaweed fiber t-shirt treated with peppermint oil to keep the shirts fresher between washes. And if we're making you nervous so far, it won't help to note that Mac Bishop, founder of Wool and Prince, another no-wash outfitter, said he wore one of his company's shirts for 100 days without washing it. The company offered a free $128 dress to women who would do the same with it and received such an influx of women eager to take the challenge it had to limit the free dresses to 50. At this point, I would pause and say, if you're having a party, especially a dinner party in a closed room, you may want to check your list to see if you've inadvertently invited Mac Bishop. We think you may want to give that one a second thought. And have you ever said to yourself, you know, I need some toothpaste, and I need it right away, and you know what I'd like it to be delivered with? How about a drone aircraft? Well, you're in luck. It turns out that Amazon is unveiling what they're calling a revolutionary new drone, which will apparently start delivering toothpaste and other small household items, they say, within months. Apparently, this so-called revolutionary design allows a drone to carry packages weighing up to five pounds and come within a foot or two of the ground and drop the package in a marked spot. The drone is said to have mastered how to detect utility wires and clotheslines. Quoting Ger Kimchi, that's his real name, reportedly the vice president of Amazon Prime Air, says we have a design that is amazing, although he declined to say where the device would be tested. It has performance that we think is just incredible. We think the autonomy system makes the aircraft independently safe. Let's see, a foot or two off the ground. I don't suppose there's any possibility you could walk out the door and stumble into a drone, is there? Why, my goodness, according to the article in the East Bay Times during interviews, Kimchi 
showed examples of the multiple layers of protection the drone has to ensure it won't drop itself into a backyard drop zone if a person unexpectedly walks into the way. I feel much better already. We assume, of course, that none of these uh, drones are going to stray into controlled airspace. Writing on this topic, The Economist asked, what can be done to avert the cancellation of 1,300 flights carrying 220,000 passengers a day if a drone appears in controlled airspace? And the answer is, not a lot. According to the magazine, these modern drones are not low and slow devices, but capable of speeds up to 160 miles an hour. Of course, they are referring in this instance to the drones that hobbyists can go out there and purchase. The magazine did point out that they can be adapted by hobbyists for both benign and malicious applications, like graffiti sprayers, grabbing claws, fireworks launchers, flamethrowers, tasers, handguns, and this is one I really like, chainsaws. But don't worry, they assure us that somewhere along the line they may be able to develop detection technology that will fix things. Meanwhile, on the air traffic control front, it turns out that uh, delays are increasing all over the world due to heavier air traffic. In a separate article on ATC, The Economist noted that most air traffic controllers still rely on technologies used in the Second World War. Planes are located by radar, although GPS satellites are cheaper and more accurate. Information is exchanged by voice radio instead of by data link. And, as the magazine notes, hard to credit in the digital age, in America, controllers still hand each other slips of paper to track aircraft. Well, you know, there is something to be said for low-tech. When we do get around to having a Carrington event that's going to knock out a lot of the GPS satellites that we've come to rely upon, the radar on the ground is still going to work. And so is voice radio. And, you know, so is that slip of paper that you hand to the next guy. And another example of low-tech that's probably going to serve us well in the future, there is the telephone landline. The California Public Utilities Commission is now urging cell carriers to provide backup power in case of emergency. To quote from a piece in the East Bay Times by Linda Krieger, As an inferno roared toward the town of Paradise last November, Police Lieutenant Anthony Borgman desperately tried to reach Cal Fire for information. But his cell phone was useless, silenced by damage and loss of power to cell towers and electrical lines. The phones of many of the town's residents also went mute, preventing them from giving or getting information that could have saved lives. Anyway, the article is about how if we had backup power to cell systems, that certainly could help. I wouldn't dispute that. But the article notes that more than half of California residents have cut the landline cord and rely solely on cell phones. The number is even higher, 70% among adults renting homes. This wireless network delivers federal and state emergency alerts, transmits 911 calls, and helps police and other first responders make decisions about when and where to deploy resources. Too often, the wireless network fails, according to the public advocate's motion filed last month. Analysis done by the Bay Area News Group showed that about 56% of the 4,300 emergency alert calls in the first hours of the Paradise Blaze failed. And the lack of power at the cell towers is a prime suspect in that failure. Meanwhile, notes the article, the state's communication network is evolving to become increasingly more reliant on internet and wireless services. California's network experiences, on average, about 15 outages and 255 hours of downtime a month due to failures on the grid. 
according to the Office of Emergency Services. Well, anyway, I'm keeping my landline. I, I think you might want to consider doing likewise, my dear listener. They should just send drones out with loudspeakers to tell the people what's going on. Well, somebody called 911, a crazy man just entered the studio. Oops, what do you say? The lines are down? Here's a little item I, I can't say I like. Even with the Justice Department bearing down, Google, Google continues to expand, according to Wired.com. The search giant paid $2.6 billion to buy the business intelligence and data analytics software specialist Looker. It's the fourth biggest acquisition in Google's history. Looker's software lets companies mine data to spot trends and create predictive models and could help the lagging cloud division of Google attract more Fortune 500 clients. Well, I, I certainly hope so. And you know, I find myself in a McDonald's restaurant last week. Don't ask why, but I did. And I noticed that they now have signs up where Uber drivers can come in and pick up the deliveries they're rushing off to people. Yes, although I was not aware of it, apparently people are now using Uber to bring the quarter pounders home. You know, we're somewhat discouraged to note that some people have studied it and concluded that the Uber and Lyft cars that are crowding in San Francisco are actually increasing, not decreasing traffic. Uber is also reporting that it plans to speed up restaurant meal delivery by using drones. For some reason, what pops into my head is that old George Carlin line about a certain capability he lacked, but which, but which if he could develop, would mean he would never leave the house. People, is it going to kill you to go out to the restaurant? Really? Uber's also apparently testing driverless SUVs. So I guess if you want to order a really big order of food, they're prepared to step up for you. And since we're talking about all this tech stuff, here's a little article from the New York Times I think I need to report on. The headline is, Intelligent Robot Surveillance Causes Concern. The robot surveillance was in quotes. But I like the idea of calling all the surveillance cameras robots. Anyway, according to the article by Niraj Choksi, businesses and the government have spent years installing millions of surveillance cameras across the U.S. Now... That technology is on the verge of getting a major upgrade, and the ACLU warns about it. Said the Times, advancements in artificial intelligence could supercharge surveillance, allowing camera owners to identify, quote, unusual, unquote, behavior, recognize actions like hugging or kissing, easily seek out embarrassing footage, and establish a person's age or possibly even their disposition, the ACLU argues. They said, and I quote, we face the prospect of an army of AI security guards being placed behind those lenses that are actually, in a meaningful way, monitoring us, making decisions about us, scrutinizing us. This quote comes from Jay Stanley, senior policy analyst at the ACLU and author of the report. The report notes that even though our Justice Department has said that uh, watching, you know, surveillance camera footage is boring and mesmerizing, and that attention fades after about 20 minutes, well, hey, we have AI to the rescue. Improvements to technology created to actively monitor such feeds, known by several names, including video analytics, are poised to change that, ensuring that every second of footage can be analyzed. Anyway, regarding applications, if we get AI involved, the ability to constantly analyze and learn from a video feed could help, one, self-driving cars understand their surroundings, although good, Two, have retail stores track their products. And three, assist health professionals monitoring their patients. You know, speaking as a health professional, 
I think most of us um, don't want to be monitoring our patients. It can also be used to scrutinize the routines and actions of individuals on an enormous scale, according to the ACLU, and they're not happy about it. In the report, the organization imagined a handful of dystopian uses for the technology. In one, a politician requests footage of his enemies kissing in public, along with the identities of all involved. In another, a life insurance company offers rates based on how fast people run while exercising. In another, a sheriff receives a daily list of people who appear to be intoxicated in public based on changes to their gait, speech, or other patterns. Analysts have valued the market for video analytics at as much as $3 billion with the expectation it would grow exponentially in years to come. A lot of household names are involved in this. Amazon, Cisco, Honeywell, IBM, and Microsoft. At a recent retail industry conference, IBM proudly showed how its video analytics software could be used to count customers and estimate their ages and loyalty status all in real time. The software could monitor the length of a line, identify a manager as he walked through a crowd, and flag people loitering outside the store. The software is being trained to identify a wide range of activities like using a phone, shaking hands, punching something, drinking beer, and walking toward or away from an object. Anyway, the article notes that in, in, in this system there is the potential for abuse. Those who control such systems would wield great power. Without proper regulation, they could use it to nefarious ends, according to the ACLU. Anyway, we'll continue to follow this story and others like it. I have to admit, that's the kind of story that leaves me bored and mesmerized. So let's pep things up by a jump to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Lost Causes, with the news that the Curry Pizza Company in Fresno, California, announced that we'll give one free pizza to any group of at least four diners who surrender their cell phones while they eat. The goal is to have diners actually talk to each other, the company said of its offer, which the magazine notes may have come a decade too late. And it was certainly a bad week for symbolism last week with the news that the friendship tree, which French President Emmanuel Macron gave to Donald Trump and the two men jointly planted on the White House lawn as a reminder of the ties that bind us, well, it died. See the tree, how big it's grown, but friend, it hasn't been too long, it wasn't big. And it well, would have to be considered, I think, an ugly week for fake news after reports that a pro-Kremlin Russian TV network was making its own TV series that will contradict HBO's unflattering Chernobyl miniseries. The Russian version said director Alexei Muradov will show that American agents had infiltrated the Chernobyl nuclear plant and sabotaged it. Eh, yeah, we don't think so. And we'd have to say it was both a bad and ugly week last week for, oh my God, we're back in it, video surveillance. 
with the news that the Customs and Border Protection Agency said that photos of tens of thousands of travelers were stolen in a malicious cyber attack. The images of travelers' faces and license plates taken over a six-week period in entry point on the Canadian border, part of a growing program for verifying identities and tracking people entering and leaving the country, well, a federal subcontractor violated CPB rules by transferring the images to its own network, which was subsequently hacked, or so they learned last May 31st. The breach, which reportedly did not involve a foreign nation, is reportedly is being described inside the agency as a major incident. Lawmakers and civil liberties advocates say it illustrates the perils of expanded surveillance. Hello? And from the week's Only in America file, we have this item. Maine has adopted a new state ballad, the Ballad of the 20th Maine. And this was done over the objections of Republican lawmakers who say its pro-union message disrespects the Confederacy. The ballad celebrates the famous Civil War regiment from Maine that fought at Gettysburg, but State Representative Roger Reed says the ballot unfairly ignores the great Christian men in the Confederate Army, quote, fighting for states' rights as they saw them, unquote. Maybe someone needs to explain to State Representative Reed that, you know, states' rights in the Civil War meant the right of the state to keep slavery legal, which is probably why the state of Maine was on the Union side. People in Maine, back then anyway, thought that was bad. Anyway, on last week's program, we talked a little bit about politics, and I find myself straying back into that at this moment. I mentioned the book Party Politics, Why We Have Poor Presidents by Leonard Lurie. This book was written in 1980 and has a paragraph or two I I feel compelled to cite. Donald Trump has announced that he's going to run for president in 2020 as the incumbent. Back in 1920, America elected a man who was, uh, uh, I don't know, probably... As ignorant as Donald Trump. Although I know he was a newspaper editor at one point, so he must have been literate. At any rate, his name was Warren G. Harding. There were some similarities between Harding and Trump, but some key differences as well. This is what Harding's secretary, Judson Welliver, said to a good friend. Lord, man, you can't know what the president's going through. You see, he doesn't understand it. He just doesn't know a thousand things that he ought to know. And he realizes his ignorance, and he's afraid, and he has no idea where to turn. Welliver then quoted Harding during a recent moment of torment. Judd, you have a college education, don't you? I don't know what to do or where to turn in this taxation matter. Somewhere there must be a book that tells all about it, where I could go to straighten it out in my mind, but I don't know where the book is, and maybe I couldn't read it if I found it. There must be a man in the country somewhere who could weigh both sides and know the truth. Probably he's in some college or other, but I don't know who he is. I don't know how to get to him. My God, this is a hell of a place for a man like me to be. Poignant words from a man who realized his limitations. <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty confident that Donald Trump has never expressed similar sentiments. The Economist magazine and many, many others have noted that uh, Donald Trump's use of um, economic policy to achieve political ends has appeared rather unseemly. Yes, I'm sure that's really how how politics works, but the fact that Donald Trump leaned very hard on Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador to have AMLO beef up the southern border and stop Guatemalans and others from entering Mexico from the south by threatening tariffs 
rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. There's a recent article, I think, in the Washington Post explaining why so many Central Americans are traveling north, and it has something to do with the price of coffee, which is quite low. Buried rather benignly in that article was a statistic that said that something like 200,000 Guatemalans had crossed over into Mexico in the last eight months. I presume that most or all of those were trying to make their way to the United States since they're not facing a welcome mat in Mexico. This is something we need to look into. Along with the fact that apparently someone took a photograph of the agreement that Donald Trump held up to reporters after there was some skepticism that that it was his hard-nosed policy that had caused a reversal of Mexican opinion on how they were going to treat immigrants into their country. Uh, some were claiming that, no, Mexico had agreed to this quite a while ago, and Trump said, no, 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 I did this. And he held up a piece of paper to, to show that, you know, he had in his hands the secret agreement. Photographers were able to f- focus in on the piece of paper and actually able to decipher quite a bit of it. And the claim is being made that, well, it's not what Trump says it is. And this, my dear listener, causes me to want to jump back into Uncle John's political briefs to relate a rather famous story of another politician holding up a list. To relate the story of another politician holding up a piece of paper and telling people what was in it that was a bit controversial. The man in question was Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy. The date was February 9th, 1950. Senator McCarthy, described as a rumpled, ill-shaven senator, made a Lincoln's birthday speech to a Republican women's club in Wheeling, West Virginia. No one, not even McCarthy, thought this was an important appearance. Yet, that speech made him one of the most feared men in America. Waving a piece of paper before the group, McCarthy declared, I have here in my hands a list of 205 names made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party, who are nevertheless still working and shaping policy in the State Department. Now, Republicans have been calling the Democrats communists for years, but before this, no one ever claimed to know exactly how many were in the government. McCarthy's speech made headlines. By the time he'd given a similar speech in Salt Lake City and returned to Washington, papers from coast to coast had repeated the charge. The country was in an uproar. Here's the part I like best. According to Kurt Gentry in his book, J. Edgar Hoover, The Man and the Secrets, on returning home from his speaking tour, McCarthy called Hoover and told him he was getting a lot of attention on the communist issue, but he frankly admitted he'd made up the numbers as he talked, and he asked if the FBI could give him the information to back him up. William Sullivan, who later became third in command at the FBI, protested the Bureau didn't have sufficient evidence to prove there was even one communist in the State Department. Hoover, completely ignoring the FBI's charter, assigned FBI agents to gather domestic intelligence on his ideologic enemies, pouring over hundreds of bureau security files, pouring over hundreds of bureau security files to help support McCarthy's charges. Well, McCarthy did need Hoover's help. The day after he gave that wheeling speech, he changed the number from 205 to 57. A week later, he stated before a Senate Foreign Relations subcommittee that he knew of 81 known communists. That number changed to 10 in open committee hearings, 116 in an executive session, 121 at the end of a four-month investigation, and 106 in a June 6th Senate speech. Privately, friends say McCarthy treated the list of communists as a bit of a joke. In the book The Nightmare Decade, The Life and Times of Senator Joe McCarthy, Fred Cook wrote, when he was asked, Joe, what did you have in your hand down there? McCarthy gave his characteristic roguish grin and replied, an old laundry list. McCarthy was able to keep up his charade for quite a long time because he would attack anybody who questioned his accuracy. 
For example, when the Senate Majority Leader, unable to get a firm number from McCarthy, asked if the paper accounts of the Wheeling speech were accurate, McCarthy replied indignantly, I may say if the senator is going to make a farce of this, I will not yield to him. I shall not answer more silly questions of the senator. This is too important, too serious a matter for that. And J. Edgar Hoover was quite concerned about all these reckless charges of McCarthy, not because not they were untrue. A crony of Hoover noted that, I've just spoken to J. Edgar about McCarthy. He said the only trouble with Joe is he's not general enough in his accusations. He'll give some number, like 275 communists, and then the FBI has to account for them. It makes the job a whole lot tougher. Anyway, talking about McCarthy and the McCarthy era is probably something we should do in a future program. For those completely unfamiliar with... Uh, that era of history, let's, let's, just, let's just point out it, it didn't end well for McCarthy. When Eisenhower became president in 1953, he decided uh, not to, to challenge McCarthy. Prior to that, with Truman in the White House, he'd been, had been having a field day, and I think the Republicans decided, well, you know, let him make political hay. But he made the mistake of attacking the United States Army, claiming that it apparently was infiltrated by communists, which led to televised hearings into the matter. These were the Army McCarthy hearings. And once broadcast on television, McCarthy looked like the stupid bully that he was. Owing to this, his power was significantly curtailed. The Senate voted to censure him, and he died an, a broken alcoholic by 1957. My understanding is that there were communists in, in the State Department and everywhere else in the government. It stands to reason there'd be a few here and there. The trouble is, <laughs> McCarthy never found any of them. All right, we've only got a couple minutes left. How about a stat for the day? According to marketwatch.com, Americans will spend more time on their mobile devices than watching TV, making this year the first time that's ever been true. According to research firm eMarketer, the average adult will spend 3 hours 43 minutes a day on a mobile device in 2019, compared with 3 hours 35 minutes watching television. Nearly 70% of the mobile time will be on a smartphone. Anyway, we've got about a couple minutes left here on this segment. I think I'm going to pull three random stories out of another Uncle John's bathroom readers. This was the endlessly engrossing bathroom reader. Came out about 10 years ago. Anecdote number one. When Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi was in the U.S. on an official visit back in 1985, President Ronald Reagan held a 30-minute one-on-one talk with him. One White House official reported they really hit it off. It was a warm, cordial session. But at the end of the meeting, Gandhi tactfully pointed out that none of the points the president had made had anything to do with India. And wouldn't you know it, Reagan had, in fact, studied and repeated notes that related to the King of Jordan. Anecdote number two. Back in July of 2008, California didn't have enough money to pay all of its state employees, so Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger... Yes, our governor was Arnold Schwarzenegger, laid off 10,000 workers. A week later, state controller John Chang discovered that the money-saving expenditure couldn't be applied to state payroll records because the system was written in an old computer language called COBOL, and the only state employees who knew how to use it were the ones who'd just been fired. Final anecdote. Back in 2008, McDonald's went on social networking sites such as Facebook and MySpace to solicit amateur musicians' take on hip-hop updates of its Big Mac, two-all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, etc. jingle. One of the finalists, Tammy and Bain, who'd finished in fourth place 
alas, got disqualified. Turned out he'd recently got done serving 12 years in prison for robbing a McDonald's at gunpoint. Take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.